0: We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it, and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name, And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bowl in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. And the fire of the Lord fell. And consumed the burnt offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust, and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let no one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the stories that you give us. You are a master storyteller as you have given stories to our lives and as you have given us the scriptures as the story of our world. Thank you for this dramatic story here this morning, O Lord. Thank you for the center of the story, Jesus crucified and resurrected. Father, thank you that you have done the work that we might receive grace by faith, know your forgiveness, your cleansing, and your renewal, and that we would then be agents of the same in the world. Give us your spirit, O now, Lord, that we would be illumined in the understanding of your scriptures. Help us to hear your voice and to know your welcome. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. It is the things of Jesus that keep me up at night, and that help me to sleep at night. It's the things of Jesus that keep me up at night and help me to sleep at night also, keeping me up at night. A few different things, including the mission of Jesus church. How do we do this? How do we do all of this? And it gets my, the mad scientist part of my brain spinning and spinning and spinning. What does mission look like for us and our church in the here and now and the $2 word for that, it's contextualization. How do we contextualize the mission of Jesus in this time and in this place? We're not just a church anywhere, but we are a church here. The Apostle Paul talks about how we can be all things to all people that we might win some. To Jewish people, Paul comports himself as a Jewish person. To Gentiles, to Greeks, he does the same in that direction. What do we do here? There are so many choices. What do we emphasize What do we de-emphasize? No, we don't water anything down or blinker over everything, but all of the volumes can't always be turned up to 11. Then how do we balance? How do we say on one hand to our friends and neighbors in this community, we're on the same team, we're all human beings, we want to serve the common good, but then at the same time say, these are some distinctive things about followers of Jesus, and for that matter, who are we trying to reach in the first place? There's lots of different people, lots of different people groups in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs. And then modes and media. How do I preach a sermon? What should it sound like? What should it be like? What's a healthy stretch for me? What is too much of a stretch where I got to say, I just can't preach that way? And what do we do with social media? What types of outreaches should we do and shouldn't we do? what types of service projects, and so on. And I spin, including at night, and spin and spin and spin. But then at the same time, if the things of Jesus keep me up at night, the things of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, help me to sleep. Because at the end of the day, whether it's for me or anybody, for our church or anything else, God's got this. And it's a God thing. Repeatedly in the years of my ministry, and maybe it was Eric being ordained today that I've I've been retrospective about my own life, so thinking back on my years of ministry. Over and over again, periodically, bad sermon gives good results. Every once in a while, I'll preach a sermon, and I'll think to myself, well, that didn't go well at all. I can't wait to get home and take a shower to wash the stench of this sermon off of me as soon as possible. But those will tend to be the weeks where I'll get an email or a text or somebody will tell me in person when people did that sort of thing. Hey, Jim, that sermon last week really blessed me. That really spoke to me. And I was like, really? But God works apart from and despite of me sometimes. Thinking about the mission of the church and how to contextualize, do you want to know something that I don't put a lot of time and energy into over the years? Signage. Do you know what grows our church? signage. It just happens that way. And there are people including in this room this morning that began coming to Liberty Collingswood because they saw the sign. God's got this. It's a God thing. And even that phrase itself is used by some of us and the concept by more. It's a God thing. When God intervenes in our lives in a supernatural expectedly unexpected way where God shows up. There's some coincidence or the timing is just right where we'll say, man, God did that. There's no other way. There's no other explanation for what just happened. And sometimes those God things are really small and minute, noticed just in passing by us out of the corners of our eye. Or they're really big. And we go, wow, and when God thinks in our lives are really big, it's comforting, it's encouraging, but also a little shaking. Have you ever had those moments if you're a follower of Jesus where you say, oh my goodness, this stuff is real. This is real. And there is an actual God creator of the universe who superintends over all things and loves me so much that this God shows up in my life and does amazing things. That puts, to use a biblical phrase, the fear of God in us. And I've pastored, I mentioned this at our congregational meeting this morning, big day in the life of Liberty Collingswood here. In the three churches that I've pastored thus far, there has been a similar engine of growth in each of them, namely the God thing. The God thing. Where visitors will start attaching to our church and say, I'm not sure about all of this God stuff, but I am coming into relationship with people at Liberty Collingswood, and I can tell that they believe this stuff. And they're praying for God things, and they talk about in humble, transparent ways about how God has actually showed up. And so they come near. And similarly this morning, would you, would we come near The invitation is here for us this morning to come near to the living Lord. We need it. Whether you're here this morning or watching online as a Christian, a committed follower of Jesus, whether you're still working out spiritual realities, maybe your arrow is pointing away from Jesus, maybe towards. Either way, our lives are so crazy and so sad still that we need God things. God show up. And what do you know? In our sermon text here this morning from 1 Kings 18, this is a really big God thing, where we learn more about that one true God and what makes this God unique. And so from here, let's talk in three brief pieces. Let's talk about the uniqueness of this God, how this God is exclusive, how this God is gracious, and how this God does God things, how this God is exclusive how this God is gracious, and how this God does God things. So we've made it. This is the main event, the main showdown. Act 3 of the Shakespearean play of the Elijah cycle, the royal rumble between Elijah, the prophet of God, and Ahab, the king of Israel, between Elijah's God, Yahweh, the one true God, and Ahab's God, who is the God Baal, and the God of the storm. It's been three years of drought. Surely Baal, if Baal actually is God, can do something about that. God of the storm can send lightning. God of the storm can bring rain. If you've been following along from this Sunday and then last Sunday, putting them together, at the end of our sermon text from last time, Elijah tells the king, It's happening now. Let's do this. Go gather the 450 prophets of Baal. I'll be there on the other side. Let's meet on Mount Carmel. And so the story picks up this way. And Elijah came near to all the people at Mount Carmel and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer a word. So there's going to be two altars, two bulls sacrificed, And if Baal is the real God, Baal's altar is going to catch fire. And if Yahweh is the real God, Yahweh's altar is going to catch fire. Who is the real God? And I love that phrase in the verses that I just read, where Elijah tells the other prophets, stop limping around, because it's like this and kind of interesting the other prophets of Baal, it's not that they had completely turned their back on Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and fast forward, the God of Jesus. They hadn't completely turned their back on all of that stuff, but they were limping between God and Baal, going back and forth, mixing and matching gods, which from the perspective of Baal was totally okay. It was totally okay. You may or you may not know that in this ancient Near Eastern context, people mixed and matched gods all the time. Lots of different territories, lots of different nations, lots of different gods, lots of different needs that you have, lots of different gods for those things. And if this god isn't working over here, maybe you come over here and see if this god will work for this thing that's going on in your life. The more you think about it, the more modern and current, even in our current context, something like that is. And it's specifically against that backdrop of mixing and matching lots of different gods. It's into that context that God gives the first of the Ten Commandments earlier in this ancient story. I am the Lord your God, he tells his ancient people, the Israelites, that brought you out of slavery, subtext, because there are so many gods out there and you mix and match all the time you shall have no other gods before me. Or the Shema, given later on in Deuteronomy, said to this day in synagogues around the world, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, not many, but one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your might, and with all of your soul, with all of it. And when Jesus comes along, It's not like that exclusive worship of God is relaxed. In fact, the Apostle Paul writing to the Corinthians says, yeah, our God is still God, and Jesus is the center of all of it. Continue to worship this God in Christ exclusively. But for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And Jesus himself says, hey, you probably shouldn't mix and match. Why? Because I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. And T. Wright, an Anglican scholar, put it this way. Everything we might want to ask about God and his purposes can and must now be answered with reference to the crucified and risen Jesus, the Messiah. I'm saying that to say this. Exclusive worship of the one true God has always been the rub throughout the ages and in all of these different contexts. In the ancient Near East here, Baal, totally fine, mixing and matching. Yahweh, not so much. Or fast forward just a little bit to the time of the Roman Empire and whether it was the nation of Judea or Christianity, Judea, the Israelites, were perennially nettlesome to the Roman Empire. Because Rome's mojo across the world was, we got this big pantheon of gods, and as we come and conquer and occupy other places, we can just incorporate and mix and match. Oh, you have a god for this? Well, we have a god for that. You know, we can make it work. Oh, we haven't thought of this yet. This can fit in the pantheon there. Philly fanatic and gritty? We can work with that and find it somewhere to fit it into the pantheon. But not so with the Israelites It said, we must worship God and God alone. And the same with the early church, where Rome was totally comfortable saying, you can have a lot of different gods, but just make sure that you have one Caesar who is lord and savior, kurios, Kaisoter. And the church flipped it on its head and said, yeah, you can have many Caesars, as many Caesars as you want. But the Roman emperor Caesar, you're sitting in Jesus' chair. Because there is only one Lord and Savior of all things. And today, we have so many friends and neighbors, and maybe you feel this pull. Maybe this is where you are yourself, where you might say, there are some good things, say, in Christianity. I'll I'll take these things. These really vibe with me. And then Eastern religion, Buddhism, lots of good things there. I'll take it. Or from the secular right or from the secular left, let me put put all of this stuff together and mix and match. And I'm not saying that people that do that or if you do that it's evil and pernicious and you're 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 going out of your way to be as wicked as you can. No, I'm not saying that at all. And I understand that from a perspective of the world, the Bible is weird. But this is the thing. The Bible knows that it's weird too. The Bible knows that it's always been weird, and before I came to Jesus myself, I would think, well, maybe in earlier times it was more normal for there to be exclusive worship of one God and just one way, but now in an increasingly global, pluralistic world, that's just an outdated idea that's shown to be wrong. The world, even in the ancient context, in the time of Moses and the time of Jesus, was always pluralistic and always weird. But then from the other perspective, is it really that weird? If there is one God that created all things, that we are called to have allegiance to this one true God. Kind of like this, early story from Angers growing up. And I ask his permission to say this story when Josiah, our oldest child, was maybe two-ish and parents who have toddlers two, three, four, I forget the exact age, somewhere around there, there's this light bulb moment when you have kids, when your little kids discover that your mom or your dad, they have other names, too. And so the light bulb turned on for Josiah when he said, Mom is also Emily. Wow. Dad is also Jim. And he, he took this information and says, I can start call, calling Dad Jim. He, he only ever called Emily Mom, but he said, yeah, Dad, I could start calling calling Jim, and he did it not only within the house, but also outside of the house too. Hey, Jim, come over here. Hey, Jim, come over there. And it only took a couple of times for me in public to be asked, hey, so are you Josiah's stepfather, for me to say to Josiah, okay, we need to talk about this a little bit more. And and this is how I put it. He said, my son, I love you. And there are so many people that can call me Jim. And we hadn't had any other kids yet but you're the only person in the world, and any other kids that we have, that can call me dad, that can call me father. I'm your dad, and so we have a special relationship. Use it. So similarly, with all of us around the world, we have one dad. We have one father. And when I told the story over the years, party context, oh, this is a cute little story about our kid, and I told him that this is a special name, Josiah, you've got to start calling me dad again. At no point ever did somebody come back to me, either in the moment or afterwards, and say, that was a particularly discouraging example of exercising the patriarchy upon your child. No, it just made sense. You're his dad. He's he's your kid. It makes sense. And so I would say that it makes sense for us in a similar way to consider our Heavenly Father, and worship Him exclusively. And so the invitation for us is to come near. And we are invited by the living Lord to say, hey, do you want to make this exclusive? In what ways are you limping around and paying the price for it yourself? Worship and serve me alone. And as we do that, maybe it's a huge step of faith, maybe it's more subsequent steps of faith, you will find a unifying factor in your life that you've never experienced before. And that's a God thing where we can be centered and find a through line and a meta narrative for our fragmented world and our fractured souls. Here is something unifying as our God is one in Christ, we can be one and unified beneath him. Come near, this God is exclusive and also gracious. So the game is on, the Royal Rumble, Yahweh versus Baal, and Elijah does everything that he can to actually game the system in favor of Baal. Continuing on in our story here, verse 22, then Elijah said to the people, I, even only I, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. It's like Elijah says, you only need one Joel Embiid, am I right? You can have lots of other players on the other team, but I am the king on the chessboard here but still outnumbered. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces, lay it on wood and put put no fire to it. And also, Elijah's telling the other team, you get first choice and first chance. First choice, you pick the bull. And if you wanna go first, you can go first. Every opportunity for the prophets of Baal to let their God, Baal, light that thing on fire. And so it begins, they pray, verse 26. They took the bowl that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal, answer us. But there is no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And maybe you caught it when I read the verses earlier. Isn't this a great taunt in verse 27, right? At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing or he is relieving himself. Hey, kids. Hey, kids. There's potty humor in the Bible. That's actually what's going on right now here. Isn't it great? Or he is on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Other gods in the area, they had to sleep every once in a while. That's why in the Psalms, our God neither slumbers nor sleeps, right? But this God is not showing up. And then they, the prophets, have to turn up the volume. This is where it gets interesting. And they cried aloud and cut themselves After their customs, and not just this time, cutting was regular, with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them, and they kept going and going and going and going. But this is how it is with idols. Two sermons ago, Eric Mitchell gave a great sermon talking about idols, how idols are anything or any person or any idea that you give yourself over to and say, if I give myself over to this person or thing well, then I'm secure, then I'm provided for, then I'm satisfied. Whether it's a career, whether it's a self-image, whether it's friends, whether it's relationship, whether it's pleasure, I'm going to give a lot and get a lot back. But that's the lie. We'll give a lot, all right. But then we'll give more and more and more. And as we give... That God, that idol, is not going to give back, but it's just going to take. It's going to demean us. It's going to diminish us, so that metaphorically, we've got to rub ourselves up more and more to the point of self-harm, cutting ourselves. But the one true God, as we worship this God exclusively, graciously, you don't have to cut yourself. You don't have to perform. You don't have to measure up and then keep pressing harder and harder, because it's never enough. That's how it is. Worship money. I need more and more and more. My job, that's all I am, is this job. I'm watching Spider-Man Homecoming recently, I'm got, my, my last child, we're going through all the MCU movies one more time. Spider-Man at one point says, without this suit, the Spider-Man suit, I'm nothing. That's an idol. And he has to learn to get out of that. I got to keep giving more of myself, so hopefully I'll get more back, but we never do. It is not so with our God and Christ because this God doesn't just take and take and take ungraciously but instead is gracious through and through and through and this is a change over the years since I've been ordained and since I've been doing ministry I think there has been a shift in what the primary idol is for years I think it was achievement now I think it's identity For years, it was achievement, need the right job, right education, right attainment level. But now it's identity, and I need to be this specific kind of person, aligned in these ways, doing these things, having these friends, ascribing to comporting my consumerist behaviors in all of these directions. But here's a common denominator. Whether for us it's achievement or achieving a certain identity, in either case, it's performative. I need to perform so that I can achieve this goal, achieve this idol. I need to perform and be this kind of person so that I can get to be this kind of identity. And we're performing either way. And there's so much pressure to align this way or that way. And we'll think of each other. Do you drive a Prius? Do you drive a Dodge Ram that has a bumper sticker that says, My Ram ate your Prius? What are we showing ourselves to be? But this is the great thing about Jesus, whether you're achiever or an identity finder. The identity by faith that you receive in Jesus is not achieved, but rather received. It's not achieved, but received, because Jesus achieved that identity for you on the cross the very end of the story, the prophets of Baal are slaughtered. And it's the case that the sword at the center of the story fell upon the son when he was judged in our place on the cross, settling the debt for sin that he would conquer sin and death and the devil and rise again to give us an alternative way to be included. You see, it's not that Christianity is only all about this exclusive stuff and doesn't think about it at all inclusion. It just changes the axes a little bit, and here's Christian inclusion. A scholar put it this way, and this is a reflection quote Christ is the exclusive way to God vertically, yet witnesses to him in the New Testament portray him as remarkably inclusive in his outreach to the world around him horizontally. We should preach Christ as the only way of salvation without insulting persons or other convictions in the process, for Jesus said that he is the only way. The vertical beam of the cross, the exclusivity of Christ as the one way of salvation, must be firmly planted in our preaching and teaching first of all. This beam is high and deep, but it carries another beam. Onto this firm vertical beam of the exclusivity of Christ must be nailed the horizontal beam of the inclusivity of Christ, which is as wide as the world and as far-reaching as the most desperate sinners. And so come near in this way. Come near as a motif in this passage. Come near and know the relief of receiving an identity from Jesus that you can never perform and never achieve on your own. That's a God thing. And so let's talk about God here as the God, too, that does God things. The odds are against Elijah in every possible way. He's outnumbered. It's the prophets of Baal. They got first choice of bull and first chance at all of this. But then it's even harder. It's Elijah that has to rebuild the altar to Yahweh. And did you catch the stuff about the water? In verse 33, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. Do it a second time. Do it a third time. Water is everywhere. How on earth will the one true God get fire here? And for Elijah's part, he doesn't limp around the altar. He doesn't run around the altar. He doesn't dance around the altar. He doesn't scream around the altar. He doesn't cut himself around the altar. He just prays. Just words. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are a God in Israel and that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. God shows up. If earlier the chorus was and there was no voice, there was no answer, here God answers by fire because he is the real God. Why should you follow Jesus? Well, among other things, because of God things. Because Jesus is crucified, resurrected, and ascended, the Spirit is given, and it's a Spirit that shows up and acts supernaturally in our lives with all of those coincidences, with all of those just the right times, with all of those, it couldn't have happened this way except for God being real. Maybe it's a provision of a job or finances or a house or a place to stay. Maybe it's change, a dire marriage situation, or maybe unexpected blessing after that situation. Maybe a deep addiction, maybe a devastating struggle, and God shows up. And I was going to say, here are some God things in my life, but let's continue it this week on the podcast. Post Sunday Blues, email in, postsundaybluesgmail.com, whether anonymously or you want to give your name Let Emily and me talk this week on a podcast. We record Tuesday midday. It comes out Wednesday morning. Let's share some God things, whether you're in the room or online, and talk about how God has showed up in our lives. And so come near. We don't presume upon God things, but we can be humbly expectant and look for them and pray for them. God, would you please show up here? We need you. Remember God's faithfulness. Elijah takes all of these 12 stones for the 12 tribes of Israel in remembrance. We remember Jesus crucified and resurrected. God, you did not spare your son, but offered him up up us for us all. Will you not give us good things? Are you not our heavenly father? Would you show up graciously? I don't deserve it, but Jesus did for us. And don't brag, but be transparent about it. Elijah prays what all see, verse 37. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, that you have turned their hearts back, that they too would come near. As they confess in verse 39, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, The Post Sunday Blues, a preaching postmortem, on the same podcast feed where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.